Hello and welcome to episode 205 of the, of Filmmakers, the Filmmakers Podcast. Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films to TV and... Everything in between. And how to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to... Royally F them up. In a very, very humble opinion. Welcome to the show. I'm Giles Alderson. I'm Dom Lenoir. And today on the show we have director and screenwriter Phyllis Nagy. She is the director of Call Jane, the brand new feature film starring Sigourney Weaver, Kate Mara and Elizabeth Banks. The lovely Dom Lenoir sat down with Phyllis Nagy and had a chat, but he wasn't on his own. No, because Connorborough did so well on last week's episode, we decided to give him another go. So Connorborough joins you. But before we get to that and you not taking the mics with you, um, let's talk about what you discussed with Phyllis Nagy. So I'll, what well, our what listeners get from this. What was that about Mike? Uh, the fact that you forgot to bring him. We weren't going to bring yeah. it up in the intro bit. We're going to really rib you later, but... Uh, oh, excellent. I wanted, excellent. To, okay. I wanted you to talk about what people will learn from the episode first with Phyllis Nagy. Right, okay. They'll learn that content trumps the method of recording. Right. Is this your excuse for forgetting the mic? That's not, that's, uh, let's move on. Let's move on. Good. So tell us, what did you chat about with Phyllis? We talked about the writing process. We mm-hmm. talked about bringing the era alive without making it showy. The difference between theatre and film writing. Her big break with Carol. And mm-hmm. handling a sensitive subject matter with a light touch. Ooh, that's nice. It didn't sound like you were reading that at all. Just wanted to bring that up. Jars <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> makes me write down stuff on, on Microsoft Word and it's, it's really boring and, and, and corporate. <laughs> I just want you to say interesting things. I just want to record some, and he, he, makes, he makes me write down these little sound bites like a corporate drone and no, read them you don't out like have a robot. To be corporate. No, the thing is, if I don't do that, you'll witter on about it for 30 minutes. And people well, just want yes. to know headlines. Right? What do are they, they going to get from the episode? All right, do, do it in your own words, and don't look at your bit of paper that you can't read from. Okay, we discussed the writing process, we discussed how she approaches <laughs> theatre and film differently. We right. talked about how she handles a light touch with a sensitive subject matter. You're looking at it. You're I'm looking not. at it. You're so... uh, <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. It nearly was better. It was nearly better. Yeah, nearly better. Anyway. Phyllis Nagy is the screenwriter of Carol, as Dom said, which was the Oscar winning film mm. starring Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. Uh, it was so good uh, that she then wrote and has now directed Call Jane. It's about a married woman with an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, She lives in a time in America where she can't get a legal abortion and works with a group of suburban women to find help. Yes. It's a great film and and it it does, it manages to convey all of the you know the sort of the details that you need to know about the era the politics mm. um and, you know and the trouble that these these women are going through but it but it does you know i said light touch but it, it does manage to not be a sort of a, an overly heavy you know difficult film to access you know and i, I think it is very very good and, and informative um and it's a good drama wonderful so it's, uh, it's worthwhile yeah and, and it fits with the current era as well it's, it's very timely um, how things have come around with American politics. I love it. And it is out in the cinemas now. Do go support, honestly. This this is great. I couldn't be there because I've been uh, travelling between Portugal and Spain, still filming at the moment, and I'm in now one of the echoist rooms I might ever have been in, apart from the echo chamber I was in when I was born. But I am on the thickest blanket 
more thicker than a blankie. I'm struggling. I'm sweating. I, I felt slightly, after Jars has been off in, in all the, the glorious sort of European countries, th- this anecdote of him walking into a melting hot radiator-filled hotel room uh, oh, it was. in, yeah, in, in Spain and then, and then having to wear a duvet <laughs> gave me a, a mild bit of schadenfreude. <laughs> Good schadenfreude. Literally eight, nine-hour drive I've just had and then I land into my hotel room knowing I had to do the intro with Dom. Dom's like, come on, I need to eat or I need to go to bed, one of the two. I'm coming to the hotel room and they had the heating on in southern Spain. And now I'm under a thick duvet. Blanky. Blanky. Let's always call it blanky. We should, shouldn't we? It's always a blanky. Just to clarify that, you know, we talked about all day. I've been working, Mm. slaving away on Giles' cinema run all day. And then 9.45 p.m. I want a time. I want you clocked in and out. Slaving away on the podcast. Yes, it's amazing. Yeah, basically, Dom is our tour manager for Three Day Millionaire. I've been mentioning this for the last couple of episodes now. Three Day Millionaire is coming to cinemas in literally 15 days. It's actually got previews in eight days' time. Eight days' time! It's going to be out. What's the name of the document? Dom, like I say, is our tour manager. And he is labelled the Doc's Google Drive and Dom yes. being Dom has called it <sighs> the Torshank Redemption the Torshamp Redemption in brackets <laughs> three day with a three right? this is, it's all about Dom basically it, he's helping us wonderfully with the tours <laughs> Q&A tour around the UK uh, and he's written it basically about himself and by the way we are going to go through this list of where we're screening Tough shit. You're going to have to sit and listen yeah. to this. For one thing, it'll probably be quite funny. We'll I do it quickly. Dom will chuck a couple of puns in. But also, it's really mm. important. We, it, it, we've worked so hard on this, you know, for the last, God, two years solidly. So mm. to finally get a film like this into cinemas is huge. Honestly, it's a really big deal. It doesn't happen that much these days, and we've fought hard for this to happen. And Dom's worked mm. his little ass off to get some of these screenings. So you are going to sit there uncomfortably while we list them out. <laughs> Okay, at the 18th of November is the world premiere in Grimsby. It's the Parkway in Cleethorpes. We've already had to put on extra screens on the 18th because it's sold out three times over. How exciting. Next, when's next? Cleethorpe, back again on the 20th, this time with a Q&A. Then we've got Leeds on the 21st, Showcase. We've got Maplethorpe in the Lowen Cinema on the 22nd. Mm-hmm. We've got the London premiere on the 23rd. But that's sold out, so apologies for that. We've got the 24th in Manchester Stockport. We've got the 26th, we've got Blackpool Region, which is a lovely old cinema. This is all November, by the way. 27th, we've got Huddersfield, the Rex Cinema. That's a nice big one. Then we've got the 30th of November, we've got Croydon at the David Lean Cinema. We have got Kino on the 1st of December. The link is not up for that yet. And that's Kino in London, by the way. Birmingham on the 4th at the lovely uh, Mockingbird Cinema in the Custard Factory area. And lastly, but not leastly, we have got the Weatherby in Ilkley. No, well, we've got a cinema in Weatherby, which Mm. is calling itself Ilkley. So we need to clarify this, and I'll get to the bottom of this tomorrow. It's basically very near my hometown of Harrogate, so I'm very much looking forward to this one. But I need to know if it's Weatherby or Ilkley, because they're very different places. So we're just getting to the bottom of that. And then we might have Ireland as well. So, yes, that is Three Day Millionaire. It is... 
coming out in cinemas. Honestly, please do support. If you're anywhere near any of these places, we are doing a Q&A. Myself, Jack, some of the cast, Dom will be there doing funny puns, I imagine, with the Q&A. Come join us. Come say hello. Meet us in person, but also support indie films. Support us. 3 Dead Millionaire will be playing, by the way, in, in showcase cinemas around the UK as well. So that was the Q&A. Yes. We talked about, but we have showcasing in Blue Water, Bristol, Coventry, Glasgow, Leeds, uh, Nottingham, Paisley, Peterborough, Reading, Teesside, Cardiff, and Dudley. Just to name a few. That's enough for me, fucking groveling. There we go. So, sorry you had to sit through that, but yeah. now you can go out and buy a ticket, so that's great. So congratulations to you so I had a shout out for Simon Rumley he has his crowdfunder for his latest book called The Wobble Club well I think it might be his debut book but Simon Rumley is a brilliant director he's made some amazing feature films and now he's written a novel and he just needs some money to get it published if you have some spare cash and if you like any of Simon Rumley's work which I'm sure if you've seen it you will then do go support him links to that are in the show notes right let's get to it because honestly this sweat is dripping down my nose he's mm. probably going into the microphone right now very nice, very nice. Oh, i can't bear it right introduce the podcast dom i'm gonna take this duvet off i can't i can't cope oh my god you are listening to cool jane with phyllis nuggy welcome to the filmmakers podcast we are delighted to have you on this uh, representing such an amazing film uh, can you tell us how you feel being in the lff and back in London. Ah, thank you. Yeah, I was here, what, six years ago or five years ago, I can't even remember anymore, uh, with another film that I wrote but did not direct, of course. And this time it's exactly the opposite. So that that, that feels quite nice, actually. I, I've, I've enjoyed my time here and I like being back here, even though I've come at a rather dramatic moment for... Uh, yes. British politics. Yeah. <laughs> when hasn't it been in the last yeah. <laughs> Yes, I know. I mean, it was not this dramatic when I lived here, that's for sure. I think, I think America and England are sort of always competing to, you know, who's, who's got the most interesting politics at the time. That's a tough call. And, uh, that's that's very tough call. I mean, and we're a bit more, we're better now, a little bit. <laughs> but um, I think we did kind of trump you. <laughs> oh, I like that. Oh, that's not like that, yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do like my puns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, how did this this whole sort of project come to you in the first place? How did it all begin for you? Robbie Brenner, who is a wonderful woman and our lead producer, sent me the script. And I read it. And Elizabeth, Liz Banks, was attached already. And I've known her for now a long time. And uh, though we've never worked together. I read it and I said, "What? Why? Why me? Why do you? Why do you think I could do this?" And we talked about it, and I realized that she was right—that I could bring a lightness of touch to this topic and be non-judgmental. Fine. So I read it again with a view to seeing if I thought I could make that happen. With Liz, you never have—you rarely have the um, the ability to to tailor make something for someone whose work you know. I mean, even with Carol, I mean, Kate was attached before um, anyone else. But I don't know, there's something that, you know, I didn't know Kate. It had already been written. She, it wasn't the same. So that there's Kate Blanchett, there's that woman from, you know, The Lord of the Rings. You don't... <laughs> slightly different role slightly different role but you know she's who she is yeah um and at least i i I mean i know elizabeth it felt like 
a human to me instead of a deity. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but in fact, you know, it was hard, it, you know, it was hard work. Both, both things were hard work getting it eh, just right. But ultimately Liz was a good compatriot for that. Let's make it funny. Not let's make it a comedy, but let's make sure we're not being very doer and serious. And, you know, that ruins seriousness, actually. Mm. How many, I mean, we won't talk about examples, but how many films have you seen that are so... Just dour all the way through. Yeah. And and, and it's about a serious, solemn subject. Do you think, get me out of here. This is not life. This is not... You know, it's not authentic. It's not authentic. You know, you go to funerals and you laugh. You you have a celebration. Sometimes you cry, but I've rarely seen people actually cry like that at a funeral. I've seen old ladies try to throw themselves on coffins, but even that's funny, right? Yeah. Um, to you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, but com- I always I've always felt that comedy is is a sort of a mask for sadness anyway. And, and I, I find it's these kind of ways that people cope that sort of mask those those underlying sort of generic dour sadness that are the most interesting because people aren't sort of a, a single spectrum of happy or sad. No, I uh, think that's absolutely right. And I, I sort of, you know, I, when I saw the when I saw the sort of the, the IMDb title and it, sort of, it said, you know, comedy, drama, but it, it's almost like, I mean, comedy sort of inspires certain, you know, certain sort of, you know, imaginations. You've almost sort of created something that is, it is the lightness of touch that's that's so good in this because it, it's it, you manage to carry a very serious topic in a, in a way that feels very effortless and and is very easy to to absorb. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's it's easy to watch, and therefore sometimes that can be confused for you know, something else. Mm. This is just a mainstream bit of fluff. But I, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, even people who don't like it necessarily just kind of gloss over the fact that they've watched an entire abortion procedure. Yeah. In an American movie. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's it's a a huge thing to achieve actually to, to show that in, in a film. I mean, it is, and it's, it's, it doesn't sort of shy away from it. it. It's it's fully in, but you never feel like, oh my god, I'm watching something like really serious. Yeah, I, I think it's people underestimate how hard it is to actually get that tone right. And it's nor it's normalizing something that is a medical procedure, which I think our literature and I think film and novels and television, and most of which have been presented not from a female perspective as well, but some have. Um, whether they are very, very good or very, very bad, they mostly focus on trauma and a sort of exceptionalism, always in the extreme, because, you know, drama is, it's fun to watch something that you will never go through. So how many people actually die from the procedure? And yet all of the movies we see are about, you know, people bleeding out in an alley or yeah <laughs> yeah but it's sensational isn't it it's that sort of... is why i liked this in the beginning because it's not it's about women solving problems it's about women getting together and i was going to say women talking but i <laughs> i don't want to say that because there's a film like that right which i haven't seen 
But um, again, something's in the air. Women are making films about women getting together to solve a problem that other people can't solve, which is, I think, what women have probably done forever in some way, quietly getting on. And the film quietly gets on. And so there's a... I had some friends come and watch it, English friends, not <laughs> last night. I was very gratified that they actually paid attention to the, you know, the things that you do pay attention when you watch a film, but somehow, like, the art direction and how there were all of these gourd shapes in the film. And I was like, wow, you really you watch that? That was, but you do, except when there is a subject that people think is foregrounded. So suddenly they think, you know, oh, this is just a rip from the headlines thing, right? That no one paid any attention to anything. We just turned on the camera and it's like, well, no, of course you pay attention. But you have to be willing to entertain that the subject matter doesn't really drive uh, a film in the way that you think it is or a book or a play. That it is just the, what is it, the hanger on which you... Build all the characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it, it is, it's, it's very much a sort of, a, it is about a group of women that sort of band together and other women that sort of come in and out of the of the story. Um, and it, it is, it's kind of, there's, there's, a, there's a very nice connection there uh, and the sort of camaraderie and, and yeah. I mean, did you, when you were sort of, when you first received the script, I'm, I'm guessing the whole scenario in America um, with the, the Wade versus, yeah. Wade versus Roe, Ro, is that Roe right? Ro, Ro v. Wade. Roe v. Wade, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't even a thing. Um, I mean, <laughs> did, did, has, has that affected the release? No. I mean, this was always planned for you know, whenever it's being released, the end of the fall. Um, and it's being released, coincidentally, the week before the American midterms. So that's that's interesting. But when we were making it, or when the script came to me, you know, Trump was busy putting those people on the Supreme Court. Ah, so this was already in the, in the, in the pipeline in a way. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we knew this was coming. They've been trying to chip away at it for years. What, what we didn't know, what I didn't know, was how they would just decapitate it just all at once. That's fine. I mean, it seems to have galvanized American women in some way. Look at the vote in Kansas. So maybe not chipping away was a mistake by uh, the Supreme Court, but it's odd. What's odd is they're the judicial branch of our government. They politicizing decisions. They've never done that. Well, they have always followed a sort of zeitgeist in a way, but this isn't following the zeitgeist. You poll after poll is you know sixty seventy percent. I can't remember of Americans don't think it's anybody's business, but, uh, you know, the woman. Yeah. I mean, it, it was shocking like for, for us in the UK. I mean, it was, it was really, I mean, I can't obviously speak, but it, it was a shock just to hear it on the news. It, it seemed, it seemed out of reality with like the way that the world was, you know, progressing. And I guess it's a very, it's, it's very, it's very good that you've got a film like this that's out there. That's, you know, that has got a good message. Well, I hope it just, you know, can inspire some somebody in, in a place where it's not easy uh, for them to be to 
get up, get out, band together with others who will probably feel similarly. Um, that's really a modest hope, but I don't, I don't have any grand <laughs> illusions that any film can change the world. I, mean, I was talking about this with someone else. Is, are there films that have changed the world? I think there's films that, that change individual people. Yes. I, 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 think, I think when you, you can be in the cinema and you can be going through something very specific in your life, and a film can just be a brilliant catharsis. And it can either change your perspective or it can help you release something or, you know, empathize with something. But, you know, if, if that happens to one person across the globe times a million, then, then you know, maybe it is enough. People get talking about it in the press. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I, think, I think there is, I don't think it's like one film will, will change it, but I think one film starts a wave and then another one starts a wave and it, it all sort of builds up. And I, I do think there is a... It's not an easy thing to measure, but I think there's definitely an impact. I think that's true. When I think about it, I, I re remember all the letters I would get from women, older women, younger women, um, around Carol, and how they would tell me their stories, especially if they were older women who had, who had actually been alive at that time, and how meaningful it was to see for them to see their sort of story depicted on screen. I think that's, though, these days what people respond to, their stories. And it's interesting to me as a, as a writer, uh, especially, I've never been interested in my own story. I mean, I'm profoundly boring and, and, and I'm always interested in other people's, you know, I go to the cinema, I read books to not learn, I don't mean learn a lesson about a, another culture or another, but about people. Um, and, and that is something that I hope people may take away from this, that maybe you see your own story in there somewhere, but actually it's a collective story about the kind of action that you don't see a lot now. You see a lot of performative action a lot of public action, but the things that you can do without having to put yourself out there, you know, either on social media or in the streets or literally. Well, so, so quite unsung hero sort yeah. of story in, yeah, a, in yeah. a way. I mean, they're, they're not like promoting themselves or expecting any kind of praise from anyone. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, <laughs> well, I know they obviously they could. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, <laughs> <laughs> Big banners everywhere. Yeah. But it, no, but it is, it, I, I think people love those kind of, those stories where people are doing it for, you know, not for the fame or the glory. And it's obvious they aren't. They're just and doing they're just it. helping people. I mean, I think yeah. that's something, that, that whole attitude of what's in it for me, you know, is just not operational for that group. And who knows, probably there were, pockets of that everybody you know they're human beings but i really i know i teach sometimes and and the younger the student the less likely they are to have lived without any um restrictions so the whole issue of abortion not being available is just that does not compute mm. especially if they have grown up in new york or california or some state where it's unthinkable that this would right would be taken away. But it's no big deal. Well, actually, it is a big deal. 
this right's connected to other rights, and those rights are connected to, you know, still more well, rights. What goes next? Well, I mean, it could be anything, really. Uh, the, the, I, somebody joked with me the other day that, you know, the way that this will all end is if the Supreme Court suddenly decides to take the right of old white men to run for Congress away. And suddenly, you know, well, we, we can't have that. And I mean, it's, it's not true, literally, but it feels true if one of those guys suddenly couldn't be a member of Congress because of his um, identity, you know. Wow. You'd see some changes. Mm. So once you once you got to the, the stage of the script being sent to you, you've obviously got a writing background. What's your process in terms of having read it versus what you want to do at, you know, with your writing hat on and your director hat in terms of in terms of purely the script to start off with? Well, I did have a meeting with the um, there was a writing team for this. And we talked through the things that I was interested in. Every director has more of a, I mean, if you're honest, you, you have more of an interest in one thing or another. And, and you then shape your past based on that. So I had a, a meeting with them and said, look, I, at that moment, we thought we were going to go into production right away. And as it turned out, COVID <laughs> Intervened, so there was a whole other year where we could then work on this. But I just sort of laid it out and said, this is what I'd like to do. They had been through a process already, asked them what they, you know, would hate to lose or what was important to them, which is actually, um, as I understand it now, really unusual for, but I have that writing background, so I understand about that. And then set about also speaking with um, Sigourney and... Uh, so Sigourney was also attached? No, no. But okay. she came on um, yeah. fairly quickly. Sigourney, Liz, because with Sigourney, then certain other pieces of the financing fell in place. This was all equity, private funded, and tax breaks, and that kind of thing. But then the dominoes with the casting, the rest of the casting. So once I had those two, and I knew exactly what we needed to do to service them. Oh, and I don't mean that in a terrible way. I don't mean <laughs> they were demanding changes. I mean, yeah. you know, you talk to people and you realize what their rhythms are and what they're not. And I think that ear um, really informs performance. You know, you put kind of words in people's mouths who shouldn't be saying them because who they are is not compatible we, I spent a long time, we spent a long time talking about that and then working. And then I just spent a long time with my DP. Um, I was, this was shot on Super 16 with one camera and <laughs> the producer was sort of white knuckling it because she said, I haven't shot anything on film for 20 years and I have not shot with one camera in 20 years. I thought, oh, whoa, <laughs> okay. Um, you sure you don't want another camera? I mean, we took a few days with another camera, and frankly, a lot of it was unusable because you can't, you know, the A camera and the B camera were... Crossing over. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think we used some... Um, there was one day when it was useful, but it was because we were shooting two different sizes of close-ups 
for the same scene. It's the detective scene toward the end. I think there's a 50 mil and a 35 mil close-up um, of John Magaro and Liz. But quite frankly, they were white-knuckling everything for the first couple of weeks. Well, first week, because we only had 23, 23 or 25 days. Not very long, especially shooting with film. I guess that might slow down the process slightly compared to digital and the cameras we have today. Well, I don't know that it did because we were very prepared. And I, I didn't do a lot of takes. We shot just under 60,000 feet of film, which is not a lot. And the... The scenes that needed multiple takes were the more, the opening shot, following her through that door. And those are the days in which I had playback because you need to know that those are working, but otherwise they had no playback. Wow. To wait for the dailies. Just yeah. trust, trust in the day, trust in the moment and your DP. And, and, the, and the planning for that. But the, those sequences, the rain sequence, all of those, the end, yeah, we, we had long, multiple takes of technical moves, and um, but mostly the acting shots. The well, the abortion sequence itself was the most complicated thing we shot because it had really numerous 10, 11 setups, and and it was a set we built that set to because we couldn't find apartments that. You know, down the hall, there'd be someone with a boom box. And, oh, yeah. Always, uh, <laughs> always that guy. Yeah. Right? Or the hedge trimmers come guy. out. Yeah. The hedge trimmers come in. No, no, no. And we needed to allow them to basically act through when we could. Mm. Then the camera sort of stays out of the way almost and allows yeah, us to see what needs to be done. Yeah, the and the DP in there. There was no one else. So, so what was your sort of, your process? I mean, you mentioned the single camera. Was was that um, a conversation with you and the, the DP sort of from the word go, okay, we want to try and shoot it in this way. We're not going to go for just sort of traditional coverage. We want to have one camera, which we're really thinking about. How, how did that, how did the look of the film sort of originate? Well, I knew that, it, you know, I had to shoot this on film because we had no money. It was I mean, we talk about it's around $8 million, which is not a lot of money for a period film like that. I knew we weren't just going to do sort of guerrilla handheld. That's not that world. That isn't what it is. And I knew that film was very forgiving, you know, 16 mils forgiving of I, what I knew would be lack of funds somewhere in the production design costumes, although we had the genius that is Julie Weiss doing the costumes. So, but I knew there would be mistakes to have to cover. And and the amount of manipulation that you can do if necessary, we didn't have to do much in a DI at all. But that was going to help us. It's always also going to help us with the immediacy connecting the period to now um, without making it a 60s um, you know I didn't want to fetishize the 60s with the sort of pop art colors and, and no I mean I don't know anybody I was watching uh, going through my mom's snapshots of when she was a young woman in the 60s nobody wore uh, bright neon pink skirts except like Edie Sedgwick you know, yeah. who was a model no one you know and so we were scrupulously trying to 
um, be in the error, but not the showing era. the error. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And we talked an awful lot about the colors of Chicago of that time period. And of course, you have people like Vivian Mayer who had color documentation um, and, and a sort of uh, framing that referenced films of the 70s. You know, well, not all films of the 70s, but certain American independent films in the 70s that we were very interested in. So there was a sort of energy that was also not of this moment, but connected to this moment. So we, we, we really, really designed the color palette of the costumes and the um, set to look like real life through the, if this makes sense, through the, through the lens of an independent film of that period of time. And I think that's one of those things that can draw you out of a story is when, you, when you're 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and suddenly you've got the jumpsuits out, you've got the, the bright colors, and it's like, okay, what, what's, what was the song from this time, or what was this yeah. from this time? Yeah. And you, you, what is good about this is that it's just subtly in the back of your mind. Every now and then you remember it's a, it's a period piece. Uh, and it's you know, but it is essentially you're just in that world as if it were today, uh, which is which is great. And every once in a while, we allowed the fabulous costume that you knew no one would own right there in that community. Like there's a there is a jumpsuit I think that Kate Mara wears at the end of the film. It's just a fabulous thing, right? But. Would she have really owned that? I don't know. Yeah. The young widow, maybe. But every once in a while, there was yeah. something that popped. Or we had about five cars that they had to keep dressing up, mm. it's, you know, because you do this. There were an awful lot of Mustangs. And I remember looking at saying, did everybody own a Mustang in 1968? So we got some, like, Crown Royals or whatever else. But um, this this recreation of a period on... Uh, what's essentially a very little amount of money uh, for for a movie like this, and that it doesn't look like absolute shit. Um, that always helps. Yeah, yeah. Always, always yeah. a good thing. Yeah. I mean, do you? How much time do you spend researching that? Because I guess it's one of those things where you hear some directors that just like become obsessed with the era. Other ones are more like, I just want to keep it authentic and real, and I have a production designer that helps with that side. How did you approach that? Um, I. I I have particular things that are of interest to me, like, you know, making sure that there's not too much art on the wall. Like, nobody has the number of pieces of art that are in films. It's like, really? I mean, if it's good art, it's fine. But who goes out and buys pictures of flowers, really, to put on a wall? But the set decoration aspect of it is like I've spent more time making sure there was furniture that wasn't totally current. As you grow up, right, and you have, your mom had pieces from her mom, or there's one new couch, and there's one. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm obsessed with. Like, not authenticity, but things that create a feeling of, we're actually here. Lived in. This is lived in. This feels right, even though you have no knowledge of, Maybe what would have been right then, but you know it from your own lives. You know, even growing up in in the nineties, you know, with you would not have had 
I mean, I don't know what this stuff is. Like, <laughs> you've got, you've got, you've, just but, for the, the audio for the listeners, we've got a mannequin in the room. Um, <laughs> and, and we've also got a, a headless a be- mannequin. Yeah, we've got, a, we've got the, the head of a bed right. that matches the mannequin, um, but with no bed underneath it, which is, which is an interesting set of... You know, instead of yes, scenarios that have come that together, is a bed that we're not. It's a much, oh. <laughs> much good bed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, what period of time is this? <laughs> mannequin, early mannequin, yeah. um, <laughs> and the art. Yeah, yeah, we've got we've got a guy hanging some some rabbits on the on on a pole. But it's um, a perfect example. You've got two pictures on this wall and nothing there. Yeah, and so in a movie, you'd have every you know it would yeah. be perfectly matched. Yeah. So my job then became saying, no, take that away, take that away, take it away. Whereas, you know, leaving people, you have those discussions. Of course you do. No, I don't want an avocado kitchen. No, this is not that kind of 60s. And then you just trust your people and then make adjustments. I always think what you take away is is just as important as what you add when you're making a film, like in terms of like the world building and and what you what kind of world you want to show, just by removing some things that might lead you in this direction or, or that, you you that is a choice. Um, yeah. Everything you take away is as much of a choice as what you put in. So yeah, yeah. One day I want to see a movie in which there's nothing anywhere. You know, there's an empty room and maybe a table, and I wonder what kind of what that would do to an audience. Have you ever seen a movie like that? I know I have. I'm blanking on it. Yeah. Oh, God. All of this negative space that yeah. is not... You see it quite often in theatre. Yeah, because that's, that's your, your background, isn't it? So, so I mean, did, did theatre, in terms of the rehearsal period, because you do a lot of that in, in theatre, was that something you like to carry on into this? Like, How, how did you rehearse with the actors for this? Well, and in how film, long of course, you know... I remember the first movie I made, which I had more money for than this one. We rehearsed for a week, which was is that Mrs. Harris? a lot. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot. But it was really a just week. Yeah, a week, and it was not a full week. It was half the day because the other half of the day was costume fittings and this and that. And I, uh, so I had everybody who had scenes with the two principals come in. And you don't sit around reading the script. You talk about just to make sure people are all on the same page because you never know. So we had that with this, but I think we had three days and it was really Liz and um, Sigourney, Wumi, uh, and then the Janes. I wanted that group to just hang out because they were important to have that that sense um chris messina and kate and the rest no you know we just talked on the set or right before we not right before we were shooting but you know you cast if you cast well good things happen and if you don't well bad things happen there's always the scissors (laughs) (laughs) i was going to ask about that actually Do, do actors ever really catch you off guard when it's your writing your your dialogue Did they ever interpret it in a way that's just completely not what you expected, whether good or bad? Yeah, I've I've had those experiences in the theatre. I mean, uh, on Mrs. Harris, we had, oh, God, like everyone in that was somebody you've seen a lot. And so 
you knew their work. No one, they would surprise me in a good way. Like I remember Mary McDonald coming on set one day and saying, would you mind if I chewed gum in this scene? And I said, no, it's fine. Oh, nobody ever lets me chew gum. Is that a thing? (laughs) Yeah. But it was the right, absolute right choice um, for her. Now, maybe if there was an actor I didn't know or didn't trust or something, I might say, oh, no, no, we can't have gum. On this, you know, Chris, I, I, I don't know if I would call it surprising because he's quite a... If, if he could be a John Cassavetes actor, he would be. Um, and he would make choices that would consistently surprise, say, remember a producer saying, I would never have thought that would be the way you would he would approach this. Like, wouldn't he come in and scream? You know, I was expecting him to come and scream at his wife. And I thought, huh, interesting. I mean, no, I wouldn't have thought he would do that. But I'm thrilled also that he didn't you just have a feel for people you know what they're going to do or know what they're not going to do and you don't try to really you directors say they stay out of the way of, of the actors for me it's more of you remind them that you're over there if they need you so you're not staying out of their way you've got you're there you have their back mm-hmm. and if they need you you're there. And, and obviously if someone is nobody really goes off course on these things unless you've really miscast. Mm. And that's on you and, you know, the producers and the vagaries of uh, financing. But <laughs> I mean, do, do you think part of that is, is, I mean, you mentioned talking is, is a big thing. Is, is it a case of talking ways of interpreting scenes or is it just literally going through the material and finding out what their perspective is and putting your own thoughts into it? Is that the kind of... Yeah, it's really about finding out what they think. Mm. And so if you find, at least for me, if you find someone is just talking about something you've never even thought about, before you shoot, you come up with strategies for how to suggest ways forward through the takes. And if you can explain what you want, actors will do it. It's the directors who stand, I suppose, in front of people and say things like, act despair. I mean, how can you act despair? There's, you know, you it's unplayable, yeah. What is that? But if you talk about something you know about, they've experienced, or a very specific thing, they can run with it. And that's really all you can do. They give you what they can give you, you ask them for something else. You you find a, a middle, and then there are just people who you don't have to ever say anything to. Yeah, I've I've always looked at it. What you said about middle, I, I think, is fascinating. I've, I've always looked at it as an, a sort of an A, B, and a C, and a, an actor's on A, and, and a, a director's at, at C, and, and then you have to sort of find something that's different from both of you in the middle, where it works for the story and it works for what you're after. Um, and I, I don't think there's many departments where it kind of works like that. You have to kind of find this this middle unexplored territory, but that's where the kind of the magic and the originality comes alive. I think. I think that's right. So, so did did theatre? I mean, did you find it a challenge when you moved from theatre into into film? I mean, do you see it, do you see it as a very different medium? Because you, you've done novels as well, and I, I remember hearing not novels. What's that? No, not didn't you novels. didn't you adapt a novel? Oh, you adapted. adapted. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I like adaptation. Yeah. But they're very different things, film and theater, and I wish more screenwriters, novelists, playwrights would would respect the differences between mm. uh, the formats. Um, I can't go back to theater right now. You have to be out of a film headspace. Mm and back into a theater headspace. But I've always, I always wanted to um, make films. It was my first love. And I never thought I would. I didn't go into theater thinking, oh, that's a stepping stone, because that's ridiculous. It's not. It's its own art form. But I knew that maybe there would come a time when the right project came along, and, and that would help get me out of that. And that, the first screenplay was Carol. Other things uh, happened in between the time that that was written and finally got made um, 15, something like that, 15 years later. So it, so it kind of happened, you know, by progress of, of really being passionate about what you're working on rather than thinking, I want to be a, you know, a big film director or... You know, you, you went through the theatre and then the, the script. How, how did the script for Carol and that process sort of come to you? There was a, a producer who approached my agent here as as that that happens that way. And she said, do you have anybody who'd be good for this? And of course, I was a friend of Patricia Highsmith's. So my agent said, well, it, you know, Phyllis, what about Phyllis? And that's how that happened. Over many years, the original producer became other producers, and that was a whole saga. But that script, I learned a great deal about, you know, how to rewrite a film script, because I was on my own for such a long time that I could, I could do it without having a director. Later, when directors, there weren't that many directors that were attached to Carol, but... Um, I could then respond quickly because I knew the material so well. And that's something I think writer-directors need to be able to do. I'm, I'm always interested when someone takes that big step up to directing a feature film. Because like, I've directed my first feature, but I made so many mistakes along the way with short films and videos for brands. I sort of felt like I had loads of room to fail before that. When you're suddenly just thrown into this massive production with big stars i mean how do you approach that does it feel like a lot of pressure or did it feel natural coming from the theater no it, it just never felt like a lot of pressure and you know i i didn't feel it on either one of these and they all had big movie stars mm. but they're actors you know it's like okay they're actors i've always been able to talk to actors and um and that's something i think that a lot of directors don't do well yeah. you know is if you okay. can talk to actors, if you are articulate about that stuff, but also to communicate with your, your heads of department and all of that, that's a, that's a great gift. You're already ahead of the game. But I, I remember the producer on this saying to me, you were the calmest person in the room. How can you be so happy? There's all this crap going on and you don't have money and the wallpaper's falling apart. And you just said, no, it's fine. That is something you have to have that innate, everything will be all right. And that, I think, probably comes from preparation, yeah. which, again, I'd, I've talked to so many directors 
And a lot of them like to wing it. And I don't understand how you can do that. Well, maybe if you have tons of money. Yeah. Phyllis, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, we wish you so much luck with the movie. Thank um, thanks for joining us. And uh, yeah, have Thank a fantastic day. Uh, okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. The Filmmakers Podcast is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. Subscribe for regular bonus content and special episodes.